Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Guys, this is Succession. This is HBO. If you don't want to hear me talking about Logan Roy, talking about then don't listen to this. There are bad language words in this show. Hello, and welcome back to Slate Money Succession. People, this is the final season of Slate Money Succession because it is the final season of Succession. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hi. Hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires. And as ever, we are going to spend the next 10 weeks talking about every single episode of Succession, which obviously this is Succession, so we are fucking well going to be swearing. So, you know, language warning. Um, And every week we are going to have someone fabulous, but it's unlikely that we are going to have anyone quite as fabulous as Mr. Jim Stewart, who is our very special first-week guest. Jim, welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you. Um, Introduce yourself. Who are you? How do Uh, they not know? uh, (laughs) Jim, does anyone not know who you are? When was the last time you met someone who didn't (laughs) know you? It's like, seriously, you 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 need almost no introduction. Well, honestly, I hope there are people who don't know because I, I don't want to be, you know, I'm not looking to be a, a huge celebrity. But um, I think for these purposes, I'm the most relevant fact is I recently published with my co-author, Rachel Abrams, a book called Unscripted, which has been widely compared to succession as a real life version of succession. But I, but I, I want to make clear that when in writing this book, I deliberately did not watch a single episode of Succession until the <laughs> manuscript was done. Because early on, like the editor said, oh, my God, this reminds me of Succession. I didn't want to even subliminally be affected by what was going on in the show. So I waited until I was completely done with that. Then I then I started watching it. And of course, you know, this I'm like, I'm not the average watcher because I'm like, rib, I, lines, you know, leap out of me. So oh, you're right. That actually happened. And. So it's uh, it's been a fascinating experience. So the first thing that everyone thinks about when they watch Succession is the Murdochs. The second thing that everyone thinks about when they watch Succession is the Redstones. Um, a lot of work does go into looking at real life events and you know in the writers' room and trying to sort of incorporate them in in ways true or not so true to life. Um, the big picture here, how, like, if you look over the three seasons and one episode of Succession that we've had so far, um, 
how much of that were you thinking, oh, wow, yeah, this is this is Sumner right here? Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess I would just say roughly, I think Logan is um, has many characteristics of Sumner Redstone. I would say he's probably he's more Sumner than he is Rupert Murdoch in terms of of character, um, although Sumner, the real Sumner is in many ways more extreme than than Logan Roy. His behavior is is more kind of kind of off the chart. So I'd say he he strikes me as like maybe 60, 70 percent. What you're saying is like that it was just too extreme to be believable in the TV shows. They had to kind of like tone it down a bit. I think so. I, I mean, especially the sexual escapades of uh, Sumner. Sumner's entanglement with these mistresses that, you know, actually have, we could talk more about that. But then, so, yeah, but I, but Sumner, I don't know really quite how to put this. He's a fascinating, but in many ways, horrible human being. Um, and I guess on the, on the, in the great hall of judgment or something, um, Sumner's worse than, than Logan Roy. But so there's, there's all that. Then the, the drama with the children, I mean, Rupert has four, uh, four children who are, you know, in, you know, in, in various forms of rivalry over the future of the Murdoch media empire. I think at this point it's up to six. Like we have to, is it six now? Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> but the, that's, that is much, that part of the, of succession is much more Murdoch because, um, it, the Sumner drove away his son who, who exited the stage, sold out, disappeared, and has really basically never been seen from since. And his daughter was, is it really the only person, you know, there were, the children were not vying for any kind of control or banding together or any of that. On the other hand, the Sumner, Sherry Redstone relationship is in many ways, I think, modeled on the Logan um, Siobhan relationship. And there are, including in this latest episode, there are like lines that are almost word for word out of quotations from unscripted. So one of the things I, I which really struck me there is this idea that there's this conceit in succession right which is that the kids are competing with each other or at least they were for the first three seasons to see like which one of them would be, end up you know taking over that's the, literally the name of the show but really if you look at the Sumner Shari relationship or the Logan Shiv relationship um, even if it had only been one kid like even then there would still be this struggle. Even then there would still be this dramatic tension because like the the Sumner slash Logan patriarch character doesn't want to hand over to anyone, even when there's no one else to hand over to. Right. And that's very, very much the case in the Redstone situation in Unscripted, where you see the relationship, uh, which you know we do explore in, in great detail in the book between Sumner Redstone and Sherry Redstone between a aging, powerful, wealthy, incredibly wealthy father and this and the daughter is, I think, fascinating. I don't think it's been explored that much in nonfiction context. This, you know, the relationship between a father and a daughter, you know, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, mothers and sons seem to get more attention. Fathers and daughters, I think not so much, but it's very 
clear that Sumner Redstone was an extremely competitive person like Logan Roy. And he treated in many ways his daughter as just another competitor who had to be vanquished. He, he couldn't stand, if she beat him in tennis, he couldn't stand that. If, if they played a betting game on the jet, then he changed the rules so he would win. Um, he, he just somehow, you know, he viewed everyone as a competitor, but somehow especially his own children and his, his own daughter, which, you know, I think competition in any relationship, whether it's, you know, a romantic partnership or family relationship like that can be very destructive and you, you see how it is there uh, with that. Then I would I just want to add, too, that there's another family here, uh, which figures very prominently in this first episode, which is the Pierces. Um, the Pierces seem to me to be modeled very much on the Bancroft family, which once owned uh, the Wall Street Journal and controlled Definitely, the Wall Street yeah. Journal. And, and that is, of course, taken from the, the Murdoch um, playbook. Uh, it, I guess you could, I think some people think it's the New York Times family uh, and the the veneer of the, the Pierce properties does sort of have some New York Times elements. But the, the real life counterpart that I think Mur- Mur- Murdoch himself lusted after the Wall Street Journal all these years and finally, after many efforts, got control of it, that was the Bancroft family. And I, since I were also worked at the Wall Street Journal many years, and I knew that I got to know the band cross reasonably well when I was there. I mean, I went, I saw the board meetings. I occasionally, you know, beat cocktail parties with some of them and they, uh, they were very much like the Pierce's they're, they're the old money here. The, the Pierce's are like, we, we talked about this in, in season two, the Pierce's are like the band cross, but with a major television network, like the, the, the TV aspect of it is, um, is doesn't really seem to have much of a real world counterpart and what it does is it no. makes their property much more valuable that like you know pgn is worth what 25 billion dollars in season two it's still worth apparently 10 billion dollars in season four um and and the pierces are just like one plutocratic notch higher than the bancrofts or the salzburgers you know if you if you look at um the vineyard where where they meet in in this episode like it is modeled pretty obviously i think on rupert's uh vineyard in in la moraga um it's it's one of those oh yeah you know we are so rich we just have like a family vineyard which costs you know hundreds of millions of dollars to to just to maintain um and and that level of wealth i think is beyond any mere newspaper family you know, my my favorite part about the way that the Pierces are sketched is that they have this kind of, um, you know, old money sensibility that says it's crass to talk about money and that any kind of ostentatious display of wealth is is terrible. So you have Nan Pierce, you know, sort of bragging that she doesn't like fancy wine. She likes thin vinegary stuff because she's, you know, salt of the earth at heart. And when they start talking about numbers in the bidding war, she behaves as if it's it's all too dirty for her to get her hands into. And so she says something like, um, you know, this makes me feel horrible and it's so confusing. And maybe you understand the financing. I, I'm not sure I do, but, you know. That was the best. That I think that was my favorite part of the show. Nan Pierce pretending that she doesn't know anything about the money and it's horrible. But And then she has the line where it's like horrible people saying different numbers. 
eight, nine. What's next? <laughs> I just, I thought that was so and wonderful. And Romans, right? What does come after nine? It's, this is so difficult. What, what could be yeah. after nine? <laughs> Yeah, I know that was that, that was a very funny line, and I I love the wine thing, which says, "Oh, I just like the you know the cheap stuff, that sort of thing." Um, the uh, you know where she sends you know her emissary out to say, "Okay, give me your high, you know, your highest best mm-hmm. offer." You know, she obviously she's she's playing that game um, very very shrewdly and. Is, Much you know, more shrewdly, I would say, than she did in season two. I think I think she's really become like an absolutely mm. expert negotiator, partly because she's dealing with a bunch of fuck up kids rather than directly with Logan. You know, like sh- she gets to play the kids off against Logan and she does it incredibly expertly. And Logan is just like exasperated, right? He's like, congratulations, you said the highest number. You know, it's he's he cannot believe how dumb his kids are and the fact that like... He ended up, you know, on. He ended up in this bidding war for an asset that he reckoned he could get on the cheap, and he's furious. And obviously, the kids aren't going to wind up buying PGN, right? There's like literally zero chance they're going to like cobble together ten billion dollars and actually buy this asset. Well, I, you know, again, in another life, I also covered mergers and acquisitions, so I like was privy to many of these bidding wars uh, that actually happened, and it did strike me that. This is uh, not very, it's cinematic, but it's not very realistic. I mean, they're, they, I mean, maybe the kids are that crazy, but I don't think so. They're just plucking these giant numbers out of thin air. I don't, nobody says anything about a dis, you know, discount cash flow analysis. The, <laughs> the investment banker is just sort of sitting there saying, oh, it, you know, you want to win, you know, let's, let's go up, you know. No, <laughs> at least the investment bankers I knew would, maybe they were trying to get it up, but they had reams of data and reams of you know associates back at goldman sachs working you know 20 hour days churning out the numbers and putting out these spreadsheets and neither side here shows any actual awareness of what is going on in this business they're you know poning up all these billions of dollars for yeah Yeah, should we just recap a little what the episode was about or are we not doing that? Or we should. We usually do we, that. We should. Um, yeah. yeah like, let's do let's that. Let's do that. Um, Emily, what was the... Em- let's set it up What a was the episode about? <laughs> so at the end of the last season, uh, the kids, the four kids, raced to try to prevent Logan from selling his company to um, the Swedish billionaire... Uh, what was his name? Gojo. Do remember his name. Yeah, they tried to race to avoid Gojo acquiring the whole company and thereby, like, I don't know, making them bajillionaires but not allowing them to actually run the company. So they team up and they make this last mad dash in Italy to try and stop the deal. But then they're kiboshed by their own mother who makes some last minute change, something, 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 and they're not able to stop the deal. So by the end of end, we learn that Tom, Shiv's husband, has gone behind her back and basically set her up to fail. And it's a big betrayal. So that's where you end the last season with them kind of on the back on the back foot as losers. But then this season starts and time has passed, which is new for Succession. Typically in the previous seasons, it's gone from like the end of one season, the next episode of the next season is like the day after. In this case, it seems like some amount of time has gone by and the kids have become like a team, which is really new for the show. We haven't seen that before. They're actually all on the same side. Who knows well, how long that's going to last. 
he doesn't count, <laughs> um, though he would like to. He's the first son. He's the first the, born. The, the first no, pancake. Connor, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and so they're all teaming up for The 100, which is sounds like one of these new terrible startups. Um, and they're obviously, they're, they're excited about it until the Pierce, the, the possibility of Pierce comes along. And then that means they can try once again to screw over their father. And by the end of the episode, just to skip ahead, it seems like they did. Well, screw over their father. But you're saying it's fleeting and short. Well, I mean, so the entire premise of this acquisition is that the Gojo acquisition is going to close in 48 hours and then they're all going to be billionaires and then they can use their money from the Gojo acquisition to go off and become media moguls. And plan A is to do the hundred and then plan B is to do is to acquire Pierce. Um you know, and spoiler alert, I, you know, none of us has seen even episode two, let alone episodes three through ten. But I'm just going to say that the Gojo acquisition is not going to close in 48 hours. Oh. Um, but um, because at that point, Logan stops being the, the patriarch, right? He's not really in charge anymore. Um, but I think we should just quickly mention The Hundred, because The Hundred is hilarious, right? Um, quote, <laughs> yes. according to Kendall, it's Substack meets Masterclass meets The Economist meets The New Yorker, which like how, <laughs> which is Sounds such a great, great Kendall line. <laughs> yes. All it's of very... Kendall's best lines are just super deadpanning business jargon all at once, and then, uh, and then having Roman react to it. So yeah, yeah but this sounded a little incredibly... bit like a semaphore to me. When yeah, semaphore slash puck. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But it's it's like the hundred most influential people in the world, and we're just going to get them in one place, and they're going to put out newsletters, and then it's going to be worth billions. And this is such a great idea. Why hasn't anyone yeah, and, done it? Know, I I love that he says at one point it's going to be you know the the biggest experts on the Arab Israeli crisis, AI, and Gourmet food. <laughs> Hot topics, all. Um, but, Jen, I mean, is that, I mean, I, you know, it's just on this side of believable. Like, I can easily believe someone launching this, you know, if they had oh, yeah. $3 billion and a bunch of ambition. Like, it's not the dumbest media idea I've heard, like, this week. No, I, you know, I, I agree. And it's, but I, I will say one thing that is boring on hard to believe and talking about whether the Gojo deal is going to go through, that they would be financing a, here's another spoiler alert, $10 billion acquisition of, of the Pierce interests before they have actually gotten their money from the Gojo sale is pretty hard to believe. I, I don't know any investment bank on Wall Street that would go out on that limb. I mean, they might be ready, like when the, the money hits to then move, but they're not going to enter into some kind of binding agreement. This isn't a binding is agreement. Closed. It's an indicative something, something, something. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> no, nobody signed any paper when the by the end of episode one. Yeah, no. This is this is this is like playing the genteel Nan Pierce game of like, you know, we will be you know polite and mention the number and you will be polite and say well okay jolly good now i'm committed to you and then we will get you know my people will talk to your people and when everything closes we'll sign the requisite pieces of paper and then at some point you will wind up with 10 billion dollars in your bank account let's hope it isn't at silicon valley bank and then you know everything will be fine (laughs) 
one thing I did find interesting was the children's sort of ruminations about how they want to be, they don't want to just be rich people. They want to be forces. They want to be players. They want to be sort of at the table. And that reminded me a little bit of what has happened in the, in the Redstone family that, you know, Sherry Redstone, the daughter, who's kind of the counterpart to Siobhan, she didn't want to be a mogul. She claimed she didn't want to be a media mogul. She didn't want to be drawn into the family business. She didn't want to be dealing with her father like that all the time. But she had no choice once the women were closing in on him. But once she was in power, once she had that, once she's at Sun Valley mingling with the top moguls of the world, she liked it. You know, she she came around. She suddenly enjoyed being the, you know, the chairman of a giant media company. So I found that very plausible that if, if not that I've you know been in these positions, but once you kind of have a seat like that, it's very hard to give it up. And I think that's why you find um, in many cases, these, the media mogul types do cling to power. It really, right. it's like, fun. Aren't you happy with your billion dollars? Like why, you know, why can't you just disappear off and enjoy your billion dollars? Why do you need to run a media company? But this is not just a, Sherry Redstone question, right? This is also a Murdoch question. The, the, oh, the Murdoch much. kids get paid out to the tune of, what, a billion or two each when Fox gets acquired by Disney. And then, you know, Lachlan takes over Rump Fox. And um, and what does James do? He immediately starts buying up, like, the Tribeca Film Festival, South by Southwest. He has an investment in Vice. He, you know, he's like, I need to be a media mogul. It's in my blood. I need to be in charge. And... I don't know how much sort of media gossiping you've been do- doing about like what happens when when Rupert dies, but there's definitely a bunch of talk about well, you know, Lachlan has gone way off to the right in terms of politics. The other kids really don't like that, and that once Rupert is gone, the other kids probably have the votes to vote out Lachlan and take over Fox News themselves and that kind of like yeah. internal struggling over <clears throat> who gets to be the big media mogul seems like incredibly succession oh yeah definitely you'd think um connor who is still running for president and he's clinging to his one percent which is a beautiful <laughs> that's that's a plausible a beautiful metaphor I, I feel like that's my, that's to my his favorite 1%. line in the in, in the whole episode, I think, is, is Connor saying, if I was to fall under 1%, I fear that I'd become a laughingstock. <laughs> yes. yes, yes. That was very good. And then, um, yeah, and that whole thing with, you know, him wanting to make his wedding into basically, <laughs> I, I don't yeah, even know, a carnival from 1917 or something yeah, with right. razzmatazz <laughs> and bum fights. Like, well, he, he just wants But it. he's also trying to be in the converse, in the game, have power, be, you know... It, just from the political angle. Well, he wants free media. He doesn't want to spend yeah, exactly. another $100 million on a hopeless quest. That's kind of yeah. Trump-like, you know, creating. I mean, somebody actually analyzed how the value of the free media Trump got, and it was astonishingly, astonishingly huge. Okay, let's take a break to monetize this podcast with some ads. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. 
Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So, so Jim, in in your sort of, you know, delving into um, how these billionaires think about money, um, we this happens twice in this episode. Connor's like a hundred million dollars is real money, you know. I'm I'm rich, but like I don't want to just burn a hundred million dollars. And then there's also that bit where you know the kids are talking about how much to increase their bid, and Roman's like five hundred million dollars. This is real money, you know. It's five hundred times a thousand times a thousand. Like people, this is actual money that we could spend on actual things. Um, and there seems to be that level of like obviously they can take private jets they can rent out houses they can do the spending in the sort of seven figure range and that's like whatever it's no big deal but the minute but it's kind of when it gets into the nine figure range that they start thinking "Ooh, now i'm actually spending money (laughs) well it's never been entirely clear to me how much money the children have at their fingertips i mean again they obviously live large they have what more than any normal person would ever dream of wanting, but I it was there was an exchange in there between uh, Connor and his girlfriend fiance, um, where she says, "Oh well, you've spent a hundred million. You've still got plenty of money, right?" And he says, "Oh yeah, yeah, right, of course." But that, but he does it in a way that made me think, "Oh, I, maybe you strip a hundred million out of him, and maybe they don't have that much more." Mm-hmm. Yeah, money. I think so I think he doesn't because remember when he went up to Connor, I mean, t- went up to Logan and asked for like a loan. Like, I think Connor's already spending some of this like Gojo money before it's even arrived. Yeah, it seems like it. And then, but it, then again, in the conversation, Roman of all people seems to be the only. I mean, Kendall and Siobhan don't, you know, as you point out, they're like tossing around billions. Like it's like you're you're playing bridge or something. I mean, it's. It doesn't seem to have any real meaning to them, except that they can what they have to do to win. Uh, and Roman is the one kind of bringing him back down to earth. Say, wait a minute, we are talking about five hundred million dollars here. 
He still seems like his character, I mean, for the first few seasons, his character was easily manipulated by the father. Like, the Logan just had control over this kid. Like, in, in season one, when he doesn't um, raise his hand, you know, to, to allow Kendall to take over the board or whatever. Um, and then even in season three, it was up until the Gojo thing happened, he was sort of in Logan's pocket. And now it seems like instead of becoming his own person, he's just in the in the pocket of his siblings. Like th- they convinced him to give up on the hundred and do this deal. He knew he knows it's too much money, but he's just going along. Like he just has no backbone. I think he, at it's all. also a part of his arc that he's a little bit of a Cassandra figure. There's a lot of foreshadowing with him, and mm. he also, you know, in the first season in particular, he was portrayed as a very frivolous character. You know, who, who seemingly didn't really wasn't too invested in the business. And then you see these sort of flashes of seriousness with him that are very selective and they're sort of dispersed so that most of the Mm -hmm. time he does have this kind of, uh, you know, superficial persona, but then he's the voice of reason in in a lot of these cases. Can can we talk Mm -hmm. very briefly about architecture here? Because one of the, there was that incredible establishment, establishing shot at the beginning when the kids were all in that ludicrous mansion in LA and um, it's so Kendall, right? Out of everyone, <laughs> out of everyone in yeah. the show, like only Kendall would feel the need to rent that like insane two hundred and fifty million dollar hilltop mansion above LA to reassure himself that he is rich and powerful. I feel like neither neither Roman nor Siobhan has that kind of level of insecurity, but like they will go along with Kendall if he needs that. He needs that. Yeah. Was that Kendall's house? I thought it, for some reason, I thought it was Roman's uh, Los Angeles now, I, glass. I, oh, no, really? No, no, no. What, what, why did you think no. it was Roman? I, I felt it was 100% Kendall. I don't know. Because I think because he was there at first by himself, like earnestly doing, you know, the presentation of logos for the hundred. <laughs> I was just like, oh, look at Roman with his house. Wow. But... I don't know. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, it seemed like more of a power uh, house than Roman would have. Yeah. I thought. But yeah. I, I, I was saying, it's fair. I think that the set designer for this show deserves some kind of incredible awards because it's it's really beautifully done. And there are all these carefully placed details that are signifiers in that world. And again, I thought the Pierce, the Pierce mansion was incredibly revealing of that old money taste as opposed to those slick glossy surfaces that Kendall goes for where but where is that Pierce that Pierce house is is that in wine country yeah I, I assumed it was in Napa well there are palm so trees all over the place and it sort of it looked out over hills and you know so I if it I was Southern California notice. wine country, then they wouldn't have had to take a private jet to get there from L.A., right? No, that's kind of – well, it could be Northern California. You know, it could be – they could have taken – they would have flown the jet up to go to, you know, Sonoma. Or right, exactly. Or, that's, know, the, that's why I assumed it was Napa. Trees? But, yeah, you find palm trees. It, but it was, but it was a very – it was a very Palm Beach look. But my first thought was, oh, this is old money Palm Beach here. You know, mm-hmm. the, the salmon-colored dining room and the – pale blue living room and that you know chintz upholstery yeah, of course can, can i just say like really the one thing i covet more than anything else in sexual you know there's one of the great things about succession is it makes everyday luxuries seem kind of distasteful and nasty but oh my god i want that wallpaper 
The wallpaper in that <laughs> house was amazing. Yes. The, the real old money crowd there, I think you would have noticed a little threadbare, you know, something that really needed to be reupholstered, but they're not going to actually bother to do that. I, I mean, maybe you could have pushed that just a little bit, but the, and then, then by contrast, like the, the Logan's dark wood paneled, you know, a baronial, you know, masculine looking apartment that he's in for the birthday party. I mean, this stuff is all pitch perfect. It and really does convey, uh, you know, these character traits of the, Jim, of the would, occupants. Would, would Sumner Redstone have wired his entire apartment with like CCTV cameras? Oh, yes. I mean, that's, that's actually true because the the, the Beverly Park Mansion, Sumner's Beverly Park Mansion, was completely wired with cameras, which, you know, the things that were recorded on those cameras are go way beyond anything I've seen on Succession. But yes, absolutely, that is right out of the Redstone playbook. The other thing I need to ask you about the Redstone playbook is the absolutely wonderful way that Carrie introduces herself to... Um, Greg's girlfriend. Greg's like, this is Carrie. And she's like, <laughs> really I'm, I'm his friend, assistant, and advisor, um, <laughs> yes. which is a great phrase. And, and you, you know, wrote a whole book basically about some of those various girlfriends. Um, how would they introduce themselves? Would they say something like that or would they just say girlfriend? Uh, or in the, in the case of um, Sydney Holland, who even looks a little bit like Carrie, um, no, she would she would introduce herself as his fiance. I mean, she wore the nine carat diamond and flashed it around. And one thing I have to get to the I never could quite get to the bottom of like they were eternal fiance. I mean, they were never actually getting married. In fact, you know, she 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 goes off and like supposedly becomes engaged to this other guy in, in the picture. And I don't know quite, quite how she strung that along for so long. But there, there were many financial benefits to being a fiancé rather than a wife. A wife, you know, she probably would have had to go through the prenuptial agreements and all of that. But as a fiancé, you've got free reign to siphon off as much as you can. And, you know, one of the astonishing things in, uh, in the real life unscripted is that the, her, his two girlfriends made off with over $150 million. And they were actually close to taking over the business empire, which is a line that at least so far, Succession has in mind. But I will say, you can see coming, Carrie uh, is insinuating herself, because she's friend, advisor, whatever she calls herself now. It's clear that she's having you know, this romantic entanglement with Logan, and it'll be interesting to see, does she follow the road, redstone path here, and is she able to insinu insinuate herself more deeply into the financial planning of the future. Ka so Carrie, she's now a player yeah. in this succession. Ka Carrie is showing some teeth in this episode for the first oh, time. Definitely. For the first time. We, we haven't seen her teeth before. And she's like, what's her name? Is it Bridget Randomfuck? Yeah, I know. <laughs> she is a very, she shows herself to be a very tough character and a pretty shrewd operator in those, mm -hmm. those opening scenes there. Yeah. So we should talk about the disgusting brothers now. This is, this is our opportunity. <laughs> yes. But first, my first question is, do, can you tell me how old Logan is? What what birthday are they celebrating? I couldn't, I didn't have time to sort of try and I, well, it wasn't, do the calculations. It wasn't like a, what well, the big one was, was in, Dub, was in um, Dundee, right? I feel mm -hmm. like the one in Dundee was 70, 75, something like that. I should have. 
done my internet and so research. this is pro- and so this is probably <laughs> like one you know I, i'm gonna guess it's like 76 it's not a big birthday it's just like having a few people around to his apartment Oh, that's interesting. Because Sumner was much older. He was celebrating. When the women moved in, they threw a big party for him for his 90th birthday and then another one for 92. Obviously, Logan is younger. He's how And how old is Rupert at this point? He's, he's Ru- 92, Rupert's 92, I think. And he's, he, I, I think we have to mention that he uh, recently got engaged again and said <laughs> he that he, he looked forward to spending the second half of his life <laughs> I have to say which is this maybe is, the most Logan Roy thing he's ever said it's 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 a glorious glorious quote and like it is the greatest Cindy Adams column of Cindy Adams column of all time and I if you haven't Fabulous. read the Cindy Adams announcement of Rupert Murdoch's fifth engagement it is one of the great pieces of of, of modern journalism <laughs> okay according to the internet breaking uh, Logan Roy is 83, and season one he had his 80th birthday party. Wait, it's been three years between season one and season four? Wow. Yeah, in, I think on the, so. Uh, that seems right, doesn't it? Yeah, it feels like right. it's gone by Each much more quickly like kind of like there. a year. Um, but 83, that kind of makes more sense to me than in his 70s, because yeah. he... In this episode, just really seems to be he looks grappling pretty old. with his existential so, so reality. Taking Colin... Um, I don't know. I can Google that too. I can do this live <laughs> on the podcast if you want. I feel like Connor's in his fifties, maybe. Maybe, yeah. At least. But yeah, so yeah. so we yeah so we have this kind of crappy birthday party on the Upper East Side with a half-hearted singing of Happy Birthday that Logan hates. The only person that Logan really wants to talk to there is Kerry, and he looks around and he's like. Isn't there like a cardinal or someone important here? <laughs> and like, who are these people? And I hate them and they're eating my food. And I'm just going to go off with my bodyguard and have dinner because I can't stand any of them. And that kind of deep misanthropy is is very Logan. Yeah, yeah. And then he goes off and has dinner with his bodyguard and then starts talking about like what happens when you he has, die. He has information like. of mortality. Meanwhile... You know, cousin Greg is having a rummage in the guest bedroom. Oh, by the way, yeah. the the whole I, I, I want to get back to Greg, but that whole intermation mortality, that discussion, that's very, very close to some things that actually happened with Sumner Redstone. He says he doesn't really believe in the afterlife, but then he kind of waffles on that a bit. But um Sumner confided in one or more of his mistresses that he feared this final reckoning and that one reason he kept saying he was going to live forever and that he couldn't die was that he, he, he was self-aware enough to know that if there was a final judgment, he was going to fail. But what I found kind of biblical about the story, and we may see this yet, I don't know, in succession, but Sumner Redstone got his final judgment long before he died. And it was, he was in his own hell for those last years, a, a hell of his own making. And I think that's one of the powerful messages I found in the whole story is that, you know, don't wait, don't wait for that, you know, deathbed conversion because you may get what you deserved long before that. What do you mean he got what he deserved? Well, he was a horrible person and he, he ended up in the waning years of his life, incredibly rich with no friends no real lovers, uh, isolated from his family, crying 
constantly being abused by these women. Um, it, it was a horrible nightmarish existence as he both deteriorated physically and mentally. It was when you need somebody who cares about you and loves you. I mean, fortunately for him, Sherry came through in the end, but, um, his, his existence was, was miserable. I feel like you're seeing hints of that. I mean, you've seen hints of that throughout this series of Logan being afraid of of death and getting sicker and kind of losing it a little bit. And then at the end of this episode, when he's just like by himself in a chair watching ATM, yes. like so many elderly people in this country are at night watching Fox, you know, and the only person he has to call is Sid, you know, the head of ATN to complain. Like he's obviously quite isolated and alone. Oh my God. Can we have more Sid, please? She's my number one favorite character in this entire show. <laughs> she, she is good. More than Nan? You, I don't know, this like show Sid and it's like well, Broadway it. women. Well, actually, you know who yeah. used to be my favorite character and is now off in Milan shopping forever is Marsha. 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 <laughs> That's a great line with it. She's shopping. <laughs> she's shopping forever. That's when I realized, oh, Carrie is, oh, she's got, she's got, she's a tough character here. Oh, yeah. But, you don't get into that position if you're not, right? But I, do, I, I diverted is- from Greg and Tom because they're, they're, Big in this episode. Yeah, and can I, uh, like, also just when you come into the the design aspects of it, um, they both have extremely expensive, very well-fitting suits on, which is new for them, right? We remember back when when the kids were all making fun of Greg, uh, making fun of Tom for looking like a Midwestern accountant, you know, salesman guy in, um, in Roman's apartment. And, And now suddenly... Tom is looking extremely sleek at this at this party, very smoothly, you know, well put together. And even Greg is, right? Even Greg is wearing like a clearly a bespoke suit. Like when you're that tall, you know, you need to have this stuff like made to measure. And it was, right? And um, and they have both like climbed up to the point at which Greg can just like waltz into the birthday party and say, well, I'm a cousin, I get a plus one, which, you know, back in the early <laughs> seasons, he would never have had the, the chutzpah to do that, let alone to, you know, go for a rummage in the guest bedroom. I mean, the, the clothes in the show are amazing to begin with. There was a great New Yorker piece, I want to say last year, that just talked about the fashion choices on Succession, how reflective they are of very specific, nuanced uh, hierarchies of class. So the fact that, you know, Tom starts out wearing this very puffy jacket and Roman says something like, jacket puffy enough, you know, and, and sort of points it out. But there are also more subtle things, you know, uh, Logan and Kendall are often wearing the same black hat and particularly when they might be aligned or there's some hint of that. Uh, so mm-hmm. along with the the set designs, the, the, the costuming is incredible. Yeah. Shiv was oh, and very the, beige. The girlfriend's purse. Oh, the, oh, oh the girlfriend's purse. I mean, well, yeah, no, Bridget, Bridget <laughs> Random Fuck is like, you know, she walks in with yeah. these like ankle boots and white socks and just like stands out like a sore thumb. Like Logan sees her coming in the door and it takes him roughly one second to go, who the fuck is that? Right. She clearly doesn't belong. Um, and then she, she right. tags Bun Pierce in an Instagram photo. And that's how Kendall finds out that Logan is bidding on Pierce. Yeah, yes, that's a great yes. that's a great twist. And then she wants to take I never would have she wants to take purse. a selfie with, with Luke. <laughs> 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 that pretty much says said it all. But I did Greg was more assertive here than the previous season. I mean, at one point he he says, "Well, look, I'm a cousin. I'm practically a, 
I'm a member of the family. I'm practically a son or something like that. I mean, he's very, mm-hmm. he's really asserting his right to be at the table here in a way that I don't think he did in previous episodes. Yeah, I think maybe there's this sort of kid-shaped vacuum now in Logan's life with the with the three, you know, all being persona non grata at this point. And he's like, I can just step into that hole and and you know take the place of like some other fuck up like roman and how hard can it be and maybe he's not wrong you know clearly he seems to have an ability to interact with logan that tom still finds very difficult that incredibly awkward conversation um between tom and logan where tom's like you know can i still be your son if i get divorced with your daughter and logan's like fuck off this guy's off his tree no, that's a great. I think that's a great scene. I love that scene because there's Tom groveling as usual. But then at the end of it, you know, Logan really doesn't say much. And then Tom says, "Well, are we good?" And Logan gives this incredibly non-committal answer. And Tom's nods. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, that's so reassuring. And you know, I'm so glad to hear that. And then Logan gives sticks another knife between his ribs. And I said, "Okay, this guy Tom is heading for the chopping block." He got no reassurance there. None. And he screwed up the deal, right? Tom is supposed to be like working this Pierce deal, and he basically <laughs> tipped off uh, his his soon to be ex wife about it and set the whole falling apartness. Sorry for that word, in motion. And I don't think he actually realized it until after it happened. And then he was thinking, oh, no, he, oh, does it matter? It was, it's all it was, over the it place. Was 50%, I, who it doesn't matter who who tipped them off. It was fifty percent Tom and fifty percent Bridget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, yeah, the two newcomers. Did you find the, you know, the the end of this episode, the sort of unravel, final, you know, the, ex, you know, I guess it's the final, the end of the Siobhan-Tom relationship or whatever. Did you find that moving or poignant or, or anything? I'm, so I'm I think one of the weaknesses did- of the show, um, not, that, not that there are any weaknesses in this show, but one of the weaknesses of the show is that we never see why Tom and Shiv got married in the first place. We never see what they see in each other. Like, you don't really believe in the marriage to begin with. The whole wedding in season one is basically just an excuse to get that Kendall plot point in there. And, you know, and like when the marriage starts falling apart, you know, during the sort of next Cove, please, Julia scene, like you're like, well, of course it's falling apart because there was never anything there to begin with. And so should we feel sad that the marriage is ending? Like, sure. But, uh, you know, what doesn't Roman have a line about that when he's talking to Nan Pierce? <laughs> it's like, um, what is that line? So it's something like, don't you hate it when love dies? Yeah, she says, I'm getting a divorce. And Nan says, I'm sorry to hear that. And Roman says, yes, it's a sad, sad day when love dies. And like, and clearly it's like, that's, <laughs> I think my take on this is, is, is basically the same as Roman's, right? I don't, I thought it was a moving scene. Um, clearly a lot of emotion and regret and. I, oh, I think in the, what do you think? In Elizabeth? the last season, they did kind of credibly have uh, Tom's character um, demonstrate that he really had feelings for Shiv and there seemed to be an imbalance because she didn't reciprocate that and they don't really they start, to Felix's point they don't really articulate why that is but I, I think Matthew McFadden's a good actor and he, he he made it feel convincing yeah and I think she was she did a good job too it seemed like she had a lot going on and was actually sad and just couldn't bring herself to admit that or admit that she's had any feelings at all, which makes sense given the family she grew up in. They, they, those 
kids can't express their feelings at all. So, of course. But you could see on on her face that she was, you know, that it was a sad moment. And then they sort of lay down in the bed and hold hands. I thought that was, I thought I, that I, was moving. I thought it was kind of moving, but I agree, Felix, that it, from the minute they appeared in this movie, you, you know they're doomed. This is <laughs> never going to work. And the, the, the open marriage that's declared on the night of the wedding, you know, that's not a good, you know, that's not a, <laughs> that's not a optimistic way to be embarking on the, on the marriage. And of course it, finally does. So I, I, I felt there was like no real surprise there, but I, I did find myself feeling kind of bad for them. Yeah. I feel yeah. bad for them. But and can I and just what, mention- t- what tore them apart wasn't even the, you know, de- declaration of the open relationship on the wedding night. What tore them apart really was that he went to Logan and betrayed her and like, she couldn't, that was it. That was the end. Like Logan basically destroyed their relationship and that whole competition you were talking about earlier sort of manifested in that way to play to one side of this like fissured family you know what I mean if it was like a normal family that wouldn't be a dynamic you could that would do anything like all major media organizations we are ad supported let's get some ads here and come back to more media gossip I would love to just make a note about the architecture here because it it is a stark distinction from Kendall's big mansion in L.A. Siobhan then flies back to New York and goes into her apartment in New York. And in a weird twist, um, which is very unsuccession, um, we get this exterior establishing shot of her walking into 120 Broadway, and it says very clearly 120 Broadway, um, which isn't even a residential building, right? And it's directly opposite um, Chase Manhattan Plaza, 28 Liberty, which is used as the um, headquarters of Waystar Royco. And obviously it's nighttime because, you know, she's just flown back from LA and it's the middle of the night. And But even then the apartment feels a little bit, cold and dark and not you know it's expensive clearly with big windows again that's clearly not 120 broadway which has small windows but like it's it's not um it's the opposite of a show-offy building it's in a kind of weirdly non-neighborhood it's not in a, it's not in a nice neighborhood at all it's down in the financial district and there's this kind of dog in a crate and there's not really any art in the walls and it feels very sort of temporary and utilitarian and um, and the opposite of the sort of grand, flashy L.A. lifestyle that Kendall is leaving. And I feel like that little bit of architectural scene setting was fascinating to me. I, I just want to note that I love that the dog is named Mondale. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was thinking about that, too. <laughs> In one of the seasons, the Pierces, uh, that was a signal to the Pierces that they were like good people because their dog's named Mondale. They're like, oh. Mm-hmm. Maybe they are a little liberal inside. <laughs> we should do some some favorite lines here. Jim, did you have like a favorite line in this um, episode? Um, well, we've we've mentioned some of them as we've gone along. I don't know that I'd call this a favorite line, but one that really leaped out at me as being so close to a redstone thing that's in unscripted is when uh, Logan want, gets on the phone and wants to say to his daughter, 
you know, I won't use his language, but you've, you've never done a thing. You've never accomplished anything. You are like, basically you are a failure. It was scathing. And it's exactly what Sumner, Sumner used to write emails like that to his daughter, Sherry. But unlike Logan, he would copy the top executives at his companies and members of the board. Oh my God. And would call her names that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to repeat even on a podcast so that everybody saw this. I mean, it was cruel and humiliating, but that line really leaped out at me as being exactly the way uh, Sumner treated his own daughter. And here's Logan, you know, it's not enough to just like lose this takeover battle, but he's, um, you know, heaps the scathing criticism on his own daughter. That made it, that made a big impression on me. And again, very, very true to life to the Redstone situation. Um, Emily? I like the line. I mean, I already said my favorite line, which was eight, nine, what's next? But I guess a runner up would be a yeah, nine B. Um, they have the the Saudi investors just like waiting outside oh, the house so and they keep putting them off. And then Kendall says, he says to his assistant, Jess, find them a journalist to burn with cigarettes while they wait. And it was just, <laughs> yeah, that. and she kind of like <laughs> waits a beat and then fake laughs. And I thought that was great. <laughs> That, yeah, that was that was like these are the media awesome. moguls people. They do not care about the media. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth. Yeah, my I mean my actual favorite was Roman replying to different people saying different numbers and saying you know it's so confusing what comes next <laughs> nine nine B. <laughs> uh, but I nine I also B. have some notes on uh besides uh, Kendall's explanation of the hundred where he calls it Substack meets Masterclass meets The Economist meets The New Yorker. It was also described as an indispensable bespoke info hub or a high calorie, high calorie info snacks. So I, I love anything Kendall describes in, in business jargon. Info snacks. Yeah, no, that was. I know about um, those. My, my favorite, my favorite version of that was when he says, we have an ethos of nonprofit, but packed crazy margins. <laughs> Um, I can't believe they walked away from this amazing idea. Who doesn't want to have a nonprofit that is incredibly profitable? I love that. Um, But there was this one line where like Shiv is trying to explain why she took the call from like the democratic politician. Um, And like, she was trying to explain that the hundred might not actually happen. And she turns to her brothers and she goes, um, she turns, she turns to Roman and she talks about Kendall and she, he, she goes, he might go on a killing spree in 7-Eleven and you might get your dick stuck in an AI jerk machine. And it's like, they, they do still hate each other. In a, fair. You know, it's fair. Um, but I think my number one favorite line, honestly, is not even a line that anyone says. It's, it's, a, um, it's a quick little thing. I don't know if you noticed it in the opening credits where they have a, a, like a, a freeze frame of... Um, of Logan's TV, like, you know, Fox News TV station. And the Chiron on the bottom says, China hack could see 40 million Americans entombed in their cars. <laughs> <Is that? laughs> what? 40 million? 40 million. <laughs> wow. That's an evolution from previous seasons, which was more transphobic, I thought. Uh, yeah. No, China's just going to, like, you know, hack our electric vehicles and entomb us in our cars. 
<laughs> oh, shoot. I wanted to ask all you all. I was trying to understand that Gojo deal because um, Logan keeps saying he's he has ATN. So is, is the Gojo deal going to wind up being like the Fox Disney deal where uh, he gets to keep, you know, the gross TV station no one wants kind of a thing? Yeah, I'm a little bit unclear about is that. that because like assumption? Is, is this a merger of equal? Is this like, is Gojo buying... Roy Star Waco and then spinning off ATN so like ATN just becomes a you know like Fox Corp or is this like Logan is still yeah. running a bunch yeah, yeah. of the combined company and also like doing a fill-in acquisition of of PGN at the same time I don't know it's confusing I can't wait to see the next week's episode <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, can you all please email us on slatemoney at slate.com and explain the structure of the Gojo Waystar deal because we need we need like we need to have this explained to us. <laughs> <laughs> I need to understand how it works. Yeah, I, I agree I agree it was confusing. Yeah. Hopefully all will be revealed. And let's remind listeners that Felix has predicted the Gojo deal is gonna fall apart and the Pierce deal is going to fall apart. So we'll be holding Felix to that throughout. I mean, let me just say this, right? We've had three full seasons of media moguls trying to do deals. And so far, we haven't had a single deal actually get done through to fruition. I feel like this is a safe (laughs) prediction. Nothing ever actually happens in this show. The Israeli AI company. The Israeli AI company. That was acquired. (laughs) It was? Oh, okay. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's the one. On which predictive note, I think we will we will just wait and see what happens in season two, and we will be back next week for a season two recap. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back on Saturday with more regular state money and Jim Stewart. Thanks so much for coming on. It was fantastic. That was lots of fun. Thanks to Patrick Fort for producing, putting this whole show together. <laughs>